This is a Sound Health radio show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is off working on the soundhealthportal.com. If you'd like to know more about the Sound Health Portal, which I highly recommend checking out, I'm pausing because I'm thinking about which direction, I, I really suggest going to the soundhealthportal.com, scrolling to the bottom, clicking on the video tab, and watching one of the live online web events Sherry does with somebody doing a live vocal analysis because you'll get to see the process. It's not hard in the sense of for the person doing the doing the recording. Sherry takes a vocal recording right online and then runs it through the amazing software that is available at soundhealthportal.com. And you get to actually see how it runs in the sense of the the work that Sherry does is based on the voice and the vagal nerve and how it can reflect, the, the voice reflects our state of wellness. So Sherry has this software that she's been writing for almost decades, now available at the Sound Health Portal, where you can go online. When you get to the soundhealthportal.com, you can look at campaigns. After you've watched a video, I suggest that's the way to start. You can look at the campaigns, and some of the current campaigns are BioDiet, PTSD, TBI, and Parkinson's, one of my favorites that rolls through is neuroplasticity. And what you can do is you can sign up for a free campaign. And the campaigns are the some of the software packages that are available on the soundhealthportal.com where you can get a workup done. And the campaigns are free to use. And they rotate around through a variety. There are dozens of possible campaigns or software packages that you can have your vo voice run through. And you'll get a report. So you, so you go to the Sound Health Portal, you go to Campaigns, you sign up for a free membership so they can send you the report, and you will pick what campaign you want to run. Let's say it wants to be neuroplasticity. I would like to see how the brain is working or where it might work better or some sort of assimilation issue or firing or synaptic gap something or just amazing information comes through. If you sign up for the free membership and choose your campaign, the system will walk you through doing two 30 to 40 second recordings that you'll submit. And then within two to six to eight hours, you'll get a report back. It just depends upon the workflow. You get the report back. There's a lot of information. I suggest you sit down with a cup of tea and read it and go, oh, that's really interesting. I've been working on that with my practitioner. And if you have a practitioner that's open to other kinds of thinking, perhaps a functional medicine practitioner. You could take that to them and you could look at, with them at it and they would see like, oh, we've been working on that. I can see how your synapses might be a little sluggish. You need a better quality fat in your diet because our brain actually likes fat for firing. And lots of great information. After you've done that, if you want to know more, then I suggest going back and watching but yet another video because there are a bunch of them available. And you could see somebody get run through whatever you chose to have your vocal printer voice recording run through. It's an amazing thing to have the Sound Health Portal now available online because we used to have a lug around laptops and it was a thing. Now I just carry around my little Samsung Go mic in my bag. And, and it's only about three inches long and weighs less than a quarter of a pound. And you can plug it into anybody's computer and be doing an intake right from their computer. It's really great to have it all available online. To hear and share replays of this show, about 15 minutes after you hear the outro music, you can go to talktomeguy.com, just like it sounds, talktomeguy.com.
scroll down that page and you'll see this episode appear in about 20 minutes after you hear the outro music. And on David Mann, what can I say? He's an amazingly prolific writer and entertaining and wow. So it's going to be one of those shows you're going to want to listen to again and or share with your friends, especially as he launches into this new style of writing, I'll call it. So you can go to talktomeguy.com, find this page. The show notes will be there and any extra links that we add in our conversation, I will add to that page. And also if down at the bottom of each page is a microphone. And if you click on that mic, you can leave me a message or a suggestion or like, what about this kind of inquiry? And it's designed really well for mobile devices because everybody likes listening to stuff on their phones. Load it right up in your phone, scroll right down to the page and listen to the show. That usually is available about 15 to 20 minutes after you hear the outro music. With that, John Midman started out as a concert cellist and composer. At 17, he dropped out of school and started his own high school. He pinballed through careers in holistic health, publishing, and sales leadership before becoming a full-time writer. John David Mann is co-author of more than 30 books, including four New York Times bestsellers and five national bestsellers. His writing has won multiple awards, including the Living Now Book Awards Evergreen Medal for its contributions to positive global change. Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL and John David Mann, have been writing together for a decade, starting with the Red Circle, their New York Times bestselling SEAL memoir. Steel Fear is their seventh book together. John David Mann joins us to talk about his first novel, Steel Fear. Welcome, John. Well, thank you, Richard, for that glowing intro. Welcome. Great to be here. It is really true. I wasn't just blowing smoke. It is really quite amazing. A, that you're such an amazingly prolific writer, but the flow of how you write and how it reads for somebody who's slightly reading challenged, I'm glad there are audible books, but it's, it's a great style. It's very relatable and assimilatable. You know, I, I, in my early life, I was a cellist and a composer. I was a musician. And classical music is my lingua franca. I mean, it's, it's kind of my, it, I think in music. Um, I, I, when I'm writing, there's always some Bach or Brahms or Philip Glass or Arwell Part or Frank Zapp or something going on in my head that's musical. So, I, you know, I write with an eye for the ear. <laughs> There's a great T-shirt there. Please put that. I've never t-shirt. said I've never I've never said that sentence before. I, I it's a weird. That's one. a great one. Yeah, that should definitely be a T-shirt. I would that would catch all sorts yeah. of excellent attention. Um, <laughs> I, I want to start here. I ha, I really kind of have to start here by asking about your quest for leadership in your books. I mean, from Go Givers with Bob Berg, your first works all the way through the, the great book by the culinary Olympian Charles Charles, which I, we did a show about that. And as my audience knows, I was a chef for 20 years. So I had a lot of like, wow, that was amazing. <clears throat> was there some sort of aha moment for you when it was like, wait, my theme is leadership. Where did the, what? Because it is really quite amazing that so many of your books are really, I mean, they all have that leadership as a thing 
thing. <laughs> yeah, there's a T-shirt. Um, I, <laughs> it, it's a funny thing. There, if there, if there has been an aha moment, or if there have been a number of them, they've all been looking in retrospect. I mean, I never set out to do this. It's I've looked back and said, huh, yeah, I, I, that really is kind of my theme. For example, you know, this latest novel that well, I'm sure we'll talk about the thriller. You know, I wrote a I wrote an essay, ended up in my blog, um, called a leadership parable disguised as a crime novel, which is really what it is. It isn't that I set out to write that. I didn't even know that's what it was per se when when you know we were framing it and starting it and doing it, but. Um, no, you know, it's it's always been just there, uh, front and center in my life, and I have never actually paused to say, ask myself why, <laughs> which you'd think I would. I will say this: my dad was a um, was a choral conductor. I played cello mm-hmm. under him in, in orchestras of his, um, you know, for you know many times. He conducted large choirs. There is no profession I can think of that is more literally leadership than being a, a symphonic or a choral conductor because you know you wave your hands and people do things <laughs> exactly what you tell them to it's very follow the leader um and he was also a a he also was a leader in every way um he was a he was someone that everybody who knew him looked up to uh that everybody who knew him was influenced by he was a leader in his field of scholarship yeah he was just so you know it was kind of like oxygen in the room as i grew up and so i've always been intrigued with what makes great leadership what makes mediocre leadership what makes terrible leadership and what results does that have what impact does that have and you know i'm I, i'm not here talking about and not normally thinking about presidents and kings and chairmen of boards. Um, I'm thinking about people, you know, like us, people, everybody, people in, in ordinary life and and the leadership impact that they have. So, yeah, I mean, long before I, I wrote any books, before I co-authored any books, before long before The Go-Giver, when I was back when I was in my network marketing days, I had newsletters I sent out from my organization. I had an organization of like 100,000 people, and I called my, my, my newsletter The Leadership Letter. That just kind of was automatic. It's like, what else would you call it? Um, there's a go-giver follow-up book called The Go-Giver Leader. It's a book we wrote after the, you know, part of the Go-Giver Parable series. I, I wrote a book with Betsy Myers, who was the, who, who ran um, Bill Clinton's Office for Women in the White House, and who was the COO of Obama's campaign. And she said she was very involved in politics. I wrote a book with her called Take the Lead. But another book with John, As- uh, John uh, uh, Addison, CEO of Primerica, called Real Leadership. So, just, yeah, it's just, it keeps cropping up again and again and again. It's like, like it's following me around, <laughs> stalking me. <laughs> well, and, and that's one of the things that amazes me about the – is a well, we talked about this backstage. When I study to interview somebody – I mean, I've interviewed you a number of times, and so you're very familiar to me, and I sort of – Followers stalk you as you go along <laughs> because I enjoy what, enjoy what you write about is the thing about leadership having been the, having worked in kitchens where I wasn't the leader and having worked in kitchens where I was the head chef or the executive chef or the lead working chef yeah. it's really huge to have a 
I, I'm one of those very I, I'm this is me loud. I mean, I'm I'm not a loud shouting. Mm-hmm. I'm not a Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. I have bad words for him. I'm not a Gordon Ramsay type. I'm just a yeah. I I want you to show up. I want you to do what you're supposed to do. I will support you in all ways that I can. And the worst thing that I could ever say to any of my kitchens was, "Don't make me come back there, back there." <laughs> they hated that yeah. because they knew if I said that, it was bad. It was really bad. I wasn't going to hurt anybody. I mean, I literally would have a line of cooks who would step back from the grill or whatever they were doing because I was coming back there like, oh, he's back here. That's not good. And there was no shouting. There was no anything. They just saw that I I prepared the dish that they had bungled and would take it out to the guest and go through that whole thing. But, I mean, it's a, leadership is a, is a thing. It's not just shouting at people and telling people what to do. It's also sh- demonstrating to them how things can be done. Or at least that's my view. And I think that's part of what you're talking about with your father waving the baton around. I mean, it, that's an amazing skill with a boatload of power, but it's not just about the power. It's about the yeah, leadership. Yeah, exactly. It, exactly. It's the, the, the baton, actually, coral conductor, like my dad doesn't use a baton, but same thing, the, the, the pointing, the waving of the hands or the giving of the orders in the military, or the giving of directive in a business. That's the directing part of leadership. And that's kind of the, you know, the tip of the iceberg. That's the part maybe that people think about or automatically go to when they think leadership. But to me, it's the, it's the minute, it's the tip of the iceberg, as I said. Um, so what's below the water? What's the bulk of it? You know, in, in the go-giver leader, uh, which is a, um, it's a parable. It, after Bob and I wrote the, the Go-Giver, a publisher said, okay, we want, we want to contra- contract, contract you for two more books, and one of them is going to be a parable. You can make it whatever you want, call it whatever you want, you know, blah, blah. So the second parable we wrote ended up being the Go-Giver leader. And, and we knew the setup of the story was going to be that this guy from a big corporation was in charge of trying to persuade this small personal business um, that the big corporation was about to take over uh, and acquire to convince this small struggling business that they weren't the bad guy, that this merger would be a good thing. And so I said, like, what would the business be? What would the business be? Well, I mean, we thought about a number of possible business, businesses that this might be, and we ended up making it a chair company, furniture company. It was a company that made homemade, magnificent, beautiful craftsmanship, fantastic customer service, chairs and the whole book is based on that and their motto with the company was we hold you up and I, <laughs> I chose that because that to me is the core of leadership leadership is how you hold people and often what happens is a leader holds you like in the palm of their mental hand believes in you when you don't believe in yourself shows you the way when you can't see it yourself sees the outcome when nobody else can see it, you know, holds on to the vision and, and, and also sees the best in you that you don't always see yourself. You know, there's the kind of leader that you're afraid to screw up because you don't want them to punish you. And then there's a the kind of leader where you're afraid to screw up because you don't want to disappoint them uh-huh. because you respect them. Um, that was my second type was my dad. He, he, like you, soft voice, softer, much softer. My dad was 
genetically incapable of raising his voice. Uh, I, I never heard him my entire lifetime that, that he was alive raise his voice. He couldn't do it. Um, nobody was afraid of him in terms of you know, him shouting or yelling or punishing. Or, but, uh, but everybody wanted to rise to their best when he was involved because he brought that out of people. He saw it, and you know he saw it. So that's that. That to me is the kind of leadership that that I aspire to, but also that I just you know that I admire. Mm-hmm. And and that we in uh, in well we'll say more about steel fear when we get to that. But yeah, it, it, <laughs> it's it's a fun topic. <laughs> There's another show. That's another bookmark for a different show about talking about leadership because there are such different styles. I'll, yeah. I'll jump sideways for a moment for myself and say that the original chef that I I just went in to get a job. There was no culinary school, none of that kind of thing. I went to a restaurant for somebody, family friend said, "Oh, why don't you go see if Leo is looking for anybody?" And and right. he was a classic German, old school, old school master chef, and that means in the old time, in the old days, that meant he journeyed in a kitchen. He worked in a kitchen for two years before he was allowed to touch knives. That kind of world yep. of like really, really brutally tough. But by the time he came out the other end, he was a master chef, and a master chef is one that can be. In large hotels, they have a salad chef, and they have a pastry chef, and they have a grill chef. Well, the master chef is one that is master of everything, and that's what he was—the real old school master chef. But he was also a loud, heavily German accent, snarling beast of a man who would rip you apart. <laughs> <laughs> and I would not grown up in a family of any of that. It was like, what is this? My God, what have I done? However, yeah. he would rip you apart, and then later on after work, he'd say, yeah, let's sit down and have some salami and a beer and, you know, talk. I mean, he, was, he would yeah. do it. He was over it. He'd, he'd taught you well, skill-wise, not in the best manner, sucky tone, great words. Um, however, he was a caring human being who was, let's sit down and talk afterwards. And that, it's mm. a very different style, but it's a style of leadership that was hard for some. I watched many people crumble under him. But once I knew that he was going to, I was never looking to have my face ripped off, but he would rip it off. But that was it. When he was it's a really, that, really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Because, yeah, well, I just do because it's, that's just such a, such an excellent, excellent thing to bring up because uh, the the model of leadership that I that I describe that I admire doesn't necessarily have to be soft spoken doesn't have to be my dad my dad is also old school German but the other the other old school German uh-huh. <laughs> the soft one leader doesn't have, great leader can be you know can be George Patton for God's sake a, a great leader can be brutal as as uh, you know sharpened nails but the way you describe, I, I ghost wrote a book for a guy a couple of years ago where actually there was a leader just like that, and I don't know if I based him on this. On if I if you told me that story or if I got it out of my imagination, but yeah, just the way you describe, he would he would rip you a new one, you know, and then um, put you back together and help you become your best. And so mm-hmm. it's a matter of personal style is not about, is not what leadership is about. It, it's about intent. It's about how how the leader sees the people he or she is in charge of leading. Um, you know, there, there are leaders who basically it's all it's, it's really all about them, and they see their their group as an extension of them. 
And then there are leaders who are, I guess you, old, good old cliche term, servant leaders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And In, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, no, no, I have a thought. I'll, I'll earmark it for later. Yeah. No, no, please go ahead. Go ahead now because I'm going to take us someplace else. <laughs> I was just going to say that, that you know, one of the things that, that happens that, that I've observed for years since I was an adult, I think, is how profoundly the style of leadership or the nature of leadership at the top of an organization filters through the whole organization. And, you know, you notice that in a retail store. You notice that in a restaurant. You've seen this. You notice it in the kitchen, I'm sure. You notice it in any kind of business organization, not 100%, but to a startlingly large percent. Uh, the, you know, so the quality of the experience that you have when you interact with an organization is profoundly affected by the nature of the leadership at the top, even if you never see that person, even if you don't mm-hmm. know their name. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that happens, so one of the things that, go, that happens in Steel Fear, in, in the thriller, I'll just jump into that for a sec, since it's just sitting there like a pinata target waiting for me to hit it. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, the story is about hunting a serial killer on an aircraft carrier. And so there's some terrible things that happen. There are some, you know, there's some heinous things. Deaths are involved. But the, and there is a killer, clearly a malevolent person. Okay, got that. You got a villain. We're all clear. Cool. But if you look closer, you know, my contention is there's a reason that all that stuff is happening on that ship. And it's not because the villain is evil. He's going to be evil no matter what. The reason that his evil doings are kind of allowed to or given space to, to, to uh, expand and fill the space is because of the captain. The captain is not an evil man. He's not a malevolent man. He's a mediocre man. He's an egocentric, arrogant, uh, uh, you know, highly, highly, I'm not going to say highly flawed because everybody's highly flawed. But he is, I'll just say it, a mediocre man. It's, it's not awful leadership. It's absentee leadership. And the nature of his leadership creates a, a culture, sort of a, a, an immune system, quality of immune system, on this 6,000-person community on this ship that allows all kinds of awful stuff to happen. The air conditioning breaks down. People get a, get a food-borne bacterial disease. And oh, also, by the way, a serial killer kills a bunch of people. So, yeah, part of the job of the book is to find the killer and solve the crimes. But another part of the book is to address the issue of what created the culture in the first place and to nail that dumb son of a bitch captain <laughs> is responsible. Yeah. So it's, it's really fun. It's like a drama on, on, uh, on at least two levels. And it's, it's a leadership drama kind of first and foremost for me. Well, and one of the things for, for me that was, I'll say it is interesting. It was sort of flashbacky in a certain way of, as I relate it to my restaurant world, my culinary world, is I've had that captain as a, as a restaurant leader. And it was the yeah. and I and I quit within six weeks because I just couldn't mm. because it wasn't about I had it wasn't just about my reputation but I was in a small town I was cooking in Carmel and people kind of followed me because I had a reputation I wasn't brilliant I was just really good yeah. and and he began to damage my reputation because he was words I can't use on air 
Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. he just didn't care. You know, he was just like he was a kid from a family that owned a bunch of property in Carmel. He thought he was the another bad word. And he yeah. wasn't. He was a terrible leader, and everybody in the restaurant. You thought he was the knew, bees. You were gonna, you were, right. You were going to say he thought he was the bees knees, right? Yes, that was what I was going to say. That's very nicely done. Thank you. That's why you're the writer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and people that I knew, both that worked in the kitchen, whether it was food servers or people sous chefs working with me, oftentimes I would see clients and they'd say, "What's up, customers?" Who had sort of followed me around, like they knew whatever I was cooking, they would enjoy. And they would come to me and say, "What's what? It feels like we're not. You're using margarine. What is that? You know, that was not my oh, style. Yeah. I was very much a California cuisine style chef, and it was just yeah, the yeah. worst. It was just it was depressing to go to work every day. It's hard enough. It doesn't need to be depressing. And that's how I related to the story about Steel Fear. Was my God, this is a floating planet." in the middle of the ocean, which terrifies me to begin with, in the middle of the ocean. And you've got bogus leadership. What a what a bad setup for what occurred. Or what a good setup for what occurred. I mean it's just it's amazing. Yeah. What people, leadership I've, heard, can I've, do. Had people, I've had people say, uh, you know, that would never really happen. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, it really would. <laughs> in fact our captain is based on uh, a captain that Brandon knew. It's yeah Terrible leadership, mediocre leadership, fantastic leadership, transcendent leadership, they, they exist everywhere in every walk of life. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's everything that we describe in that book is squarely based on reality except for the murder part. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, people do get murdered. I realize that's real. I, we haven't seen yeah. a serial killer in an aircraft carrier. But, yeah, it's, it's, the culture is real. It's very, right. very realistic, very authentic. And I, I want to ask, why, why is a novel – this is your first novel – why is a novel such a different beast in the writing world? Rather than up until mm. now, you've, you, you had taken books like the whole – and then there's the whole like Bob Berg changing your life, uh, chaining you to a desk, and it's like, write those books. We're doing this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> But I mean, how does why is a, a novel such a different? Is it a different way of is is a novel like doing jazz in a certain way? I mean, how, go for, it's please. almost the opposite of doing jazz. Almost the opposite of doing jazz. And it's yeah. so it, you know, it, in in certain senses, in a way, writing this writing the novel. And, and and by the way, this morning, just before I got on this show, I just put the period in the last sentence of the last page of the last chapter of the sequel. Um, so though it it hasn't been published yet but I've written two now so just based on that experience uh, in some ways it's no different in some ways it's the same as the parables the memoirs the business books and and the way that it's the same is for me every book is a a story every book you write you're looking to find the story so for example if you write someone's memoir well that's not fiction write it Everything you're writing about is stuff that actually happened. It's got to be accurate and real. So what's the deal? What's there to make up? There's nothing to make up exactly, but you still need to find the story. Um, you, you need to figure out, okay, here's this person's life. Now what's the arc in it? What's the drama? What's the, what's the moral? What's the high point? What's the start? Where does it start? Where does it end? You know, What are the central 
challenges, conflicts, issues, aspirations. It's, you have to like reach into the morass of just data and figure out what's the story here. And the person themselves often doesn't know. I mean, they may sometimes have an idea, but often they don't. And I've written like half a dozen memoirs or, or ten or something. I don't, and it's, it's a lovely, lovely challenge because it's like writing a novel. At least I always thought it was, having never written one. Because you have to find the story and then tell it. And you tell it using only stuff that really happened, but you're still telling it. Uh, so obviously a parable is like a mini novel because you are making it up to illustrate certain points. Uh, even a business book. You know, you pick up anything by Malcolm Gladwell, The Tipping Point, What the Dog Saw, um, you know, Blank, any of his books. Obviously, it's like storytelling at its best. Okay, my favorite nonfiction narrative writer is Eric Larson, who wrote The Devil in the White City and Dead Wake. And he just last year wrote a book about Winston Churchill during the London Blitz called The Vile and the Sublime. It was The Sublime and the Vile, one or the other. It's, it, what a riveting storyteller he is. It's all real stuff. So in that sense, I feel like you know, every book I've written is kind of the same. It's finding a great story and doing my best to tell it. Here's where it's different. Uh, in two ways. First off, I, I, other books like uh, uh, are, let's say, Brandon and I wrote a book called Mastering Fear. It was the last book we wrote before the novel. And Mastering Fear is taking, uh, you know, using experiences of Brandon's life, both in the military and special operations and just in his personal life and his, his post-military civilian life, and, you know, heavily seasoned with experiences from my life too because I'm doing the writing. We sketched out a sort of five-step process for dealing with fear, for ideas with fear. It was a really fun book. We had a phenomenal editor who really helped, helped us make it shine. Loved the book. A book like that, though, is like taking a group of people on a tour of a museum. It's like we all walk and say, okay, this way, now we're going to step into this room. All right, I want you to look around and notice all these exhibits. This is the theme of this room. This is chapter one. This is, you see it? And they talk amongst themselves. We look around. Okay, now follow me. Now we're going to go into, I'm walking around my office as I do this. Now we're going into the next room. Okay, now it's, all this stuff is happening. Great. And then maybe we take a lunch break, and then maybe we go in the third room. And it's, it's like, it's relaxed. It's informative. It's engaging. It's interesting, right? That's the day. The thriller is like taking a dozen people and they all hold onto a string, which you have in your hand, and you say, okay, we're going to run across this tightrope that's stretched across the Grand Canyon when I say three. One, two, three! And we run across this tightrope, and it goes on for 300 feet, and you can't look down, and if there's a single misstep, we're all going to die. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you, can't, you can't let go of the tension. You can't let go of the thread for a moment, and, and I mean that literally, uh, the, the, the surgical precision of the revising and rewrite process, and that was just mind-blowing to me. My, the first draft, that once I'd finished writing this thing, was 150,000 words. We brought it to our agent. She said, this is good. Of course, you know it has to go down to 100,000. Wait. That means like 
Every third word has to go? <laughs> Every third letter? Well, so we had to compress and compress and squeeze and tighten and condense and make more taut and make more tight. And uh, took out entire chapters. I took out a few characters. But mostly it was page after page after page, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, making it tighter. Taking a 12-word sentence and saying it with 10 words. Um, doing my writing teacher, Harry Bingham, he describes it as taking out words but not taking out content. Mm. It's like you're leaving, you're leaving all the story leaving all the good stuff, but you're taking out extraneous words with the way you say it. And so that was the first way it was different for me. I'd never experienced anything so demanding in in writing. And parables, as you know, because we've talked about this, parables are pretty damn exacting. Uh, A parable is one of those things that looks easy, and it is. It's really easy to write a bad one. But (laughs) You know, writing one that works. The Go-Giver just crossed the million copies mark. So it's now wow. sold over a million million copies of the Go-Giver. Making a parable like that work, simple but effective, is, is actually very, is very exacting work. But man, nothing like, a, nothing like this. This is like 400 plus pages. And it's like I said, you don't look down, don't slip, because if you do, we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> you have to hold wow. the reader because the reader will the reader will quit at page eighty if you don't you know and if the reader quits then there's no word of mouth and the thriller doesn't work. There's something else about the about that process that for me it, it's sort of like a memoir is about the subject. Um, so if I write the red circle with Brandon, it's about Brandon's life. Cool. We have points to make and themes and so forth, but you know the, the, the subject is really him. A book like Mastering Fear, the subject is is fear. A thriller, this is going to sound weird perhaps, but the thriller, the subject is the reader. A thriller is really about the reader more than any other book I've, I've experienced in that I have to be thinking as the reader, in the reader's shoes, in the reader's seat, every word of every, every sentence because the reader experience is, is, is the book, is paramount. So it was different in that way. And it was different in another way, too, for, for me, which was another surprise, which was this. You know, Brandon and I had, a New York, our first book was a New York Times bestseller, awesome on the resume, very cool. We'd written four or five more books. They'd done well, fantastic. And I had all these other books on my resumes, bunch of other New York Times bestsellers and The Go-Giver and blah, 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 blah. So you'd think that we come up with this manuscript for this thriller that we would enter the marketplace as pretty seasoned, accomplished writers, right? <laughs> like the pros from Do- Dover in the movie MASH, you know, swaggering into the operating room saying, hey, who wants to buy my manuscript? Not like that. Not We, we could have just fallen off the boat, fallen off the bus. Uh, it, it's... Because it's a totally different world. The, the, the crime fiction world, the thriller world, is at a complete remove from the nonfiction world, the business book world. And all my parables end up being lumped as part of the business book world. You know, they've all got sort of a, a business aspect to them. Even the go-giver, even the recipe, I guess. So 
This is a totally different world, which means even though the readership may overlap, uh, you know, the, the editors, the, the, the operation that's going to, you know, maybe buy and publish the manuscript, the, 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 the podcasts you go on. I mean, th- there are podcasts I've been on for Steel Fear that I would never in a million years have me come in and talk about the go-giver or the recipe, not because they don't like it. It's just not what they do. It's a different mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's like you've been a mathematician all your life, and all of a sudden you're a wrestler. I don't know. So that's a good one. I look forward like, to that story. I look forward to that book. Yeah, that's a great yeah, one. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what happened to us? Practically speaking, what that meant was we spent two years writing a hundred thousand word, four hundred page manuscript, with absolutely no guarantee that anybody would buy it, having not yet earned a penny. We, you know, we were so deep in the red on this book when we mm. you know, finished it, it wasn't funny. And we thought it was good, but we had no idea if anybody would buy it or publish it. And so we were uh, – and, and once we did, you know, all the people who ever endorsed any of my other books, none of them would make sense on the back cover of this. None of them. Not one. So yeah. I, I couldn't go to any, anybody that I know. Uh, in you know all my other book endorsers, which include some pretty nice big names, eh, useless in terms of marketing this book. So it was really an exciting experience. It, it really was like you know, like outward bound. I mean, you're suddenly plunked in a foreign city with no money in your pocket. You have to figure out how to get around. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I'll make this very short. Uh, I went from uh, there were there was a decade in between. However, I went from being a California cuisine chef and a number of other restaurants. And then when I returned to Monterey Peninsula, I was the uh, lead chef at a Salvadorian restaurant. Now, <laughs> people were perplexed by this. Like, wait a minute. Yeah. What? Yeah. You were cooking like Alice Waters and now you're doing this? And what really, <laughs> what eventually uh, people got the aha moment after I made enough phone calls and banged the drum is that people came in and realized really they were getting California cuisine with a Salvadorian spin, meaning we made nakatamals <laughs> and we made things with local fish and local poultry. It was just with a different angle because the owners wanted that angle. And it was really genuine, but it was still the same kind of high quality food. And once people got that, they were totally like happy. But, it, but the shift was market. awkward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Real <laughs> olive oil, not that canola. <laughs> BS. Um, so yeah, no, I understand that, but it is mind blowing. You have such an amazing track record that they would, you know, it's like a dog bringing in a treat, and they're like, "Yeah, we don't care. We're over it. We're just, we don't get yeah. it. Who, who are you? Yeah. What happened? To, what yeah, happened exactly. to the guy cranking out those parables? We loved those. This. And so I'll tell I don't you, know. And so, yeah. and so here, and so here's a here's a PS. Here's what really blew my mind. We, uh, for years, I've been told crime writers are the nicest people in the world. Uh-huh. Man, did I find out that that was true. Uh, we got wel- we got such a generous and warm welcome from, you know, people who are my idols in the world of, of mysteries and thrillers, um, household name writers who read our book and loved it and gave us phenomenal endorsements and went on Twitter and said good things about it and told their people to go, you know, to go read it. It's like... It was just an absolutely heartwarming, mind-blowing experience. So it's it's been it's been really nice. It's been a really good um, it's been a good transition, although it was terrifying at first. 
<laughs> we were halfway through, halfway across the Grand Canyon on that tiny rope, not looking down. And wait, where are we? What are we doing here? We're not to the other the side. Broke. Yeah, the string <laughs> broke. The, the rope, Unfortunately, the rope I bet, you know, if you're going to be on a tightrope with anybody, you want to be on it with, you know, Brandon. He seems like the guy that's, we'll figure this out. I mean, he's <laughs> yeah, like MacGyver. Pretty good point. Yeah, a little you know, bit on the resourceful side, yes. <laughs> Just a little bit. And how did you and Brandon ever start working together? You don't seem like you come from a similar community. That's all I'm saying. I've shot a lot of people. <laughs> I just thought I'd try that answer. See if that works. No. Um, I mean, that, so anyway, the laughter yeah. is in the kindest way. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that. You know, what's so funny about that? Um, so how that happened actually is, is, is interesting. I, this is in 2009, and Captain Phillips, whom we know so well from the later Tom Hanks movie, this time he wasn't yet Tom Hanks. He was just Captain Phillips. Uh, his ship was captured by Somalian pirates, and everybody was watching on CNN as three Navy SEAL snipers. Well, we weren't literally watching as it happened, but three Navy SEAL snipers took out the three Somalian pirates and, and saved his life, and that was an incredible episode. And um, within months, Walt Disney Company was trying to copyright the term Navy SEAL. They failed, wow. by the way. But that's just yeah, – I know. What happened was that was like – all of a sudden, people had known who Navy SEALs were. There was a, you know, there was a Charlie Sheen movie about Navy SEALs. And it wasn't a secret, but all of a sudden, Navy SEALs were a very, very, very big deal. And um, at the time, there was uh, the, the week that this whole drama aired uh, uh, with Captain Phillips and the Somalian pirates and, and, and the saving of the, the rescue – it was all over CNN, and my aide, my literary agent was watching TV with her sister and watching Don Lemon uh, interview a guy who had helped design the sniper course and had, had uh, developed the training that these guys went through. And she said, she pointed at the screen and said to her sister, I want that guy as a client. Well, four days later, that guy walked into her office and said, I'm writing a memoir. I need an agent. That was Brandon. Wow. Wow. Me. <laughs> so she said that, uh, you know, his, he'd done some writing. He'd written like 10, 12,000 words. He'd, he'd started some, some work on it. And she said, it's, you know, it's not bad. Uh, you've got some, some skill as a writer, but you, you, you need a pro here to do this. So let me talk to John. So she, she contacted me and said, I know you don't do this, but I've got this Navy SEAL who's writing a memoir, Navy SEAL sniper writing a memoir, are you interested? And I said, there's no way I'm not doing this. It just sounded so fascinating. Completely foreign world to me. People say, write what you know. I don't entirely agree. To me, what has been really fascinating has been to write what I don't know. Because in the process, I have to find out all about it. And so here's what happened. We, so we wrote the, the, the memoir together, which is called the Red, being called The Red Circle. In the process, you know, I don't have any military background. I knew nothing about military culture, let alone, let alone, let alone all the, the, you know, the technical aspects of, of any of it. So 
I had to learn a lot of the stuff well enough so that I understood it. And the process, that sort of enabled me to explain it to readers who also didn't know it. And I, you know, it, it is, it's kind of like, you know, my father had this profound love of the English language and he didn't grow up speaking it. He's German. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came over here during the war. And I, I learned that there's, you know, there's nobody who has quite the love for a language than, than an immigrant. You know, um, the child who writes the Jack Reacher books is, describes American culture like only somebody who's a transplant from, from England could do. <laughs> so that's, what I, that's what, how we started working together. We, we clicked. We loved working together on the book. Um, we had similar values in certain ways, even though we had completely different backgrounds. And we uh, we just made a good writing team. We've been doing it ever since. Amazing. And what was your, I guess I'll say experience, it seems like a bigger word, of when Brandon arranged to have you be on the USS Abraham Lincoln. How was that? That was was really cool, (laughs) vital. So here's the context. So Steel Fear, as I said, so here's here's the the setup of Steel Fear, a a profoundly damaged, disgraced Navy SEAL, uh, doesn't quite know why he's disgraced, uh, stalks a serial killer aboard an aircraft carrier in the midst of the Pacific Ocean. And an aircraft carrier like the Abraham Lincoln is – Brandon served on the Abraham Lincoln for six months. He did a six-month tour of the of – the, uh, a six-month tour very much like the one in the book. And uh, this is before he was a SEAL. He was a rescue swimmer, helicopter uh, sonar operator and rescue swimmer. And so the the germ of the story, the seed of the story, really came from an experience that he actually had on the Lincoln where there was a series of, they had just integrated women on, on board, that generation. Of, first time they had female combat pilots on Navy ships. And, and so they were just trying to, they were just starting to figure out how to integrate women onto, onto the ship. You know, where do they sleep? Where do they shower? How does it all work? Not allowed to fraternize. And you're cooped up in this steel tube for six months. So it was, it was a cultural shift to say the least. And, in, uh, on Brandon's tour, they, they had a sexual predator on board, a guy who would sneak into the women's shower area, flip off the lights, and run in and molest somebody, and then run. It was horrifying. It was, it was awful, and they never caught him. Huh. And so that's the, that was the germ of the story. At the time, Brandon thought, damn, what if, he was, uh, what if this was a serial killer? So the, the, the book itself is set on the exact same ship that Brandon was on, set on the Abraham Lincoln. And an aircraft carrier is the most alien, strange, bizarre environment I've ever encountered. Um, You could talk about, you know, unless you go to Mars or Jupiter. It's, this is nearly 6,000 people on board the ship. It's got some 50 acres of interior space, all, you know, wrapped in on itself over 20 miles of corridors, all tangled together in a tube the size of the Empire State Building lying lying on its side. Uh, It's like a whole city. It is. It's a floating city for six months. 
and it's got its own police force, it's got its own barbershop, it's got its own surgery, it's surgery center, it's got its own Starbucks. You know, it's it's like a little city. And so one of the biggest challenges of the book, of writing the book, was, first of all, I had to understand the layout of this thing, which is extraordinarily complex. And these corridors, by the way, don't run like like uh, Manhattan Avenue straight up and down. They, they <laughs> yeah. curve and they do dog legs and they jet to one side and the other. And it, it's just, a, it, it's like a, a, it's like an ant farm, like a, like a, you know, Warren and rabbit Warren. So I had to understand it. I had to grasp it, but also conveying it to the reader, putting the reader on the ship, giving the reader the experience of being on that, on that bizarre environment without overloading them with information, without making it, you know, like the History Channel. Hmm. That was like the biggest challenge. And one of the first decisions I made writing it was, the ship's got to become a character. The ship's got to, like, be a character in the novel. Um, Yeah, so writing the ship became paramount. Back to your question... Um, at one point, I, I, Brandon had a, a friend, actually a guy who was working for him in this business. Brandon has a media business. And his, he had this guy who had been in the Navy for years and years and years, who was working, working in his company, who I had been using as a sounding board and as a resource. And I, I, he'd been my go-to guy for technical questions that I couldn't find answers to and the reliable answers to on the Internet. And he said one day, you know, I was asking this question about the interior layout. And he said, you know, we should just get you on the ship. And they did. Uh, they got me yeah. on board the USS Abraham Lincoln off the dock in Norfolk, Virginia for a day. Um, the Navy treated me really well. It treated me like royalty. They were very nice, very helpful. Sent me around with a small crew, a photographer and all kinds of stuff. Um, honestly, Richard, I'd already written most of the book. So it, it wasn't where – it wasn't like that was where my, my knowledge of the craft started. It was where it ended. Uh, it gave me a chance to sort of confirm what I knew, see details I, I hadn't gotten right or I, I didn't know, and it helped me sort of go back through the book and give it all a, a, a polish and a revision and, and just kind of ground the writing in, in some reality. Um, and it's funny because – Again, writing what you don't know. The second book, the sequel, is set in Iceland. And I did not get the chance to fly to Iceland. So Iceland is similarly a very alien, bizarre environment. Oh, it's been really, really a challenge to get Iceland right, um, particularly without being able to physically go there myself. And I think that's one of the most fun things about writing fiction is to, is to create this world or recreate this world, this whatever world your story is set in. Amazing. The idea of, I'm, I'm phobic about open water or anything. It's just a thing. Mm. Someday mm. somebody will explain this. I'll be laying on a couch and they'll go, there it is, we've found it. And so just <laughs> the idea of being on a giant metal city floating in the ocean. And I've known people, an old friend of mine was the, uh, curiously enough, the film librarian for the USS Enterprise. Oh, fuck. And, huh. yeah, right, exactly. What? Who knew? Mm-hmm. Um, and he mm-hmm. talked about, it. We, we're still friends today. And 
he talks about just what a bizarre thing it was to be in that world of containment. Yes. I mean, you are, you're completely contained and you're contained within your containment. And then that gets smaller. I mean, you're really, people are on board. I, I think it may have been you. And one of the things that I listened to read, you talked about twins who were on the same ship, but didn't see each other for like six months. Yeah, two brothers. That, that Monica mentions the story, or the, the narrator mentions the, the, the book mentions the story in the in the first chapter, I think, or second chapter, about two brothers who went on a six month tour and didn't see each other from the, the day the ship left to the day it redocked, and that's a true story. That's that's mm-hmm. one of a billion little details I picked up by snooping around on the web. It's an amazing idea that, you know, I think people just don't have the scale. I've been on some pretty good-sized cruise ships, particularly as a chef. And mm-hmm. the scale of, you know, I've known a few people that were chefs on cruise ships. And it's the same thing, like, you know, there there are weeks when I don't see sunlight because I'm they're, they're right. working That's so right. much. That they're just same in here. the bowel. Yeah. It gives new meaning to being in the bowel of the ship or the hull of the ship. I mean, it's a thing. Yeah. You're in there, yeah, and yeah. they're not kidding. And it's in the case of being on a, a weapon of war, it's really, wow, holy moly. Yeah. Another thing about it, too, is that the, the among these 6,000 uh, uh, you know, personnel, a, a large percentage are – 19, 20, 21. I mean, mm-hmm. a whole lot of these people have, this is the first time they've been away from home. These are not, you know, uh, yes, there's an officer, there's a cadre of officers. The officers are out of 6,000, I forget, uh, 800, 1,000, 600. I forget the numbers of it, but it's, it's, you know, it's a relatively, it's a much smaller percentage. And um, so yeah, more than half of these people are, kids basically mm-hmm. and not only that there are kids from every neighborhood every state there are kids from inner city kids from the country kids with an education kids with no education I mean, it's like talk about a melting pot there's all sexual orientations there's all cultural orientations there's all attitudes about you know <laughs> about race and politics and anything you can imagine all thrown together in this culture and that's the challenge of leadership you've got to manage this city that's been thrown together um there's no alcohol on board (laughs) there's no way to let off steam in the conventional sense Uh and there's no fraternizing whether it's heterosexual homosexual it doesn't matter the sexual period you 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 know it's off it's off limits too so man it's 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 wild so that's the challenge of leadership and um it's it's remarkable. It, it it gave me a new level of respect for what the military pulls off, and by and large, extraordinarily successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, we had we had one publisher who backed off from the book and said, you know, they didn't want to deal with a book that that the military wouldn't be happy with because it put the military in a bad light. And my thought, Brandon and I both are like, are you kidding? You think we put the military in a bad light? We put the military in a really good light. I mean, the captain is an asshole, yes. <laughs> and, oh, by the way, there is somebody there who's a serial killer. But, you know, step back a little bit. <laughs> Six figure view. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, anyway. And do you think, um, as we're kind of, I'm surprised we're moving toward the exit, 
I just have to ask, do you think that the, curiously enough, the Steel Fear might be a gateway for you to come full circle to being a screenwriter? Funny you ask. I mean, that, that was where I, that was for our readers who have not been following along all the entire story. <laughs> uh, that was my plan. I was going to be a Hollywood screenwriter. That was what I was aiming towards. I was studying when I first started writing books with Bob Berg. Um, and Steel Fear has, in fact, been optioned. Um, there, not for a feature film, but for a TV series, a limited series mm. on, on uh, NBC Universal's streaming network, uh, Peacock. Mm-hmm. So that's in process now. Will it? You know, we, there is not a guarantee that it will actually eventually air. With Hollywood, you just never know. These things are subject to the winds of winds of whim and 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 time, but. It, there's a writer working on it right now. It has. We've signed a deal. They they uh, they're developing it. So we'll see. That may happen. I'm not on the right. I'm not. You know, Brandon and I are not writing that. We're not part of the writing. They consult mm-hmm. with us. So we're just about as close as I've ever been to the process. Wow. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I, I imagine that sooner or later that'll that'll probably come back around on the guitar. <laughs> Excellent. Arlo Guthrie reference for those of us who know that is. Um, that's really amazing that that, you, that it could come back to that in a certain degree. And I think it's very exciting that this could be a, I won't call it a series. I don't know what that, I don't know what the new fancy word for not series, but really is kind of a series. You're, you're writing a series of books. You're like you said early on, you just finished the last, you like put the exclamation point on the last page of the second piece of steel fear and i just think it's because it is such an intriguing story and i i love because i'm visual we talked backstage about my dyslexia so i'm much more of a visual person so i love Mm -hmm. the idea of this is a visual story because that's how i think even when i read something it's it's visual and so i think it would make an amazing visual story this, of course, is not in the audiobook version. Um, the, audio, the guy who reads the audiobook, by the way, is phenomenal. Um, he's a lovely, lovely man named Jonathan McLean, who, who um, is an actor that people who have watched the series Mad Men or uh, Navy SEAL Team on TV, he's you know, been in those shows. He's you know, a well, well-known TV actor. does a fantastic job of the read. One thing you don't get from the audiobook is the diagram. In the print book, there's a actual diagram of the of the ship from several different angles, um, which I labored over for many, many, many days. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it kind, yes. of, kind of puts you there so you can actually see what it's like. And yeah. I should say this too. In the back of the book, for uh, those listening who have not yet read the book, in the back of the book, there is the first five chapters of the sequel, Cold mm-hmm. Fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was quite. I'm, re- I'm ready for the time. rest. I'm ready for the rest. Thank you. <laughs> now would be good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's very. You know, it's all really good. We have about three other shows I'd like to do now, but we're going to stop. Um, where would there is, you like to? Pe- go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say there is an abundance of time. We shall do this again. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And where would you like people to find out more about Steel Fear and? more about you and your work for steel fear of course it's available should be everywhere 
from the online sellers to the big box sellers to the independent bookstores. Um, so if you've got your favorite independent bookstore in your neighborhood or if you just like to click, um, you know, you can just go get the book anywhere. For for me and all my books, it's everything that I do is on my website, which is just my name, John David Mann with two N's, JohnDavidMann.com. Uh, if you go to my site, splash right in the front page, you'll see uh, Seal Fears right there with, with buy links to it, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and indie bookstores. And my blog is there. My book, How to Write Good, is there. Um, if you, for, for any reason, want to contact me, hit the contact link, send an email, and it goes to me. There's no staff. I'm the staff. I read it. <laughs> I answer it. <laughs> so that's, that's, my, that's the portal to me. And he's a good writer. He will respond. He won't call you, but he'll respond. <laughs> We've had that conversation. <laughs> it's an amazing different thing. True. I'm so much more like, pick up the phone. I'll just call you. Nope, nope, nope. He will give you great words. Um, so that was, that was wonderful, John. This is, a, this is a great story, and I think it's such an interesting turn from all the other shows I've done with you that it's so interesting and fun in the sense of, I mean, it's a murder, death, kill book. I mean, so I can't, fun is tricky. I have an odd <laughs> sense of mirth. Um, but it is really like so fun yes. <laughs> to have the... Um, Sandra, Sandra this, Bullock, I love it, yes. Exactly. Uh, go this direction is really... You know, I don't know that you ever played keyboards. I, I don't know why, because I've watched piano a lot. I've photographed a lot of jazz pianists. And so I have that in my mind of I see your fingers dancing across the keys of the typewriter a certain way. And so yeah. now doing this is so interesting to see it be a fictionalized piece of work or a novel is, is amazing. I just think it's great. I recommend it to everybody. Well, thank you, me brother. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And everybody else, have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>